Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Forbidden Planet. In the year 1956, 20 men can spend a year on a flying saucer, and definitely nothing gay happened. <laughs> <laughs> With no diversity as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, today, uh, well, this is Matt. This is Luke. We are here in our sci-fi sanctuary to chat about Forbidden Planet from 1956. Yes. It's kind of a proto Star Trek. Um, and yeah. yeah, it's like there was a scene or two just I mean, just coming straight out where I was like, yeah, I want to I want to put the Kirk Spock McCoy template on it, but they're just so samey. Right. You can't tell them apart. Well, I can tell one of them apart because I forgot he was in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But, uh, um, I was, this, this actually is not totally in my DNA. I dig the film, but um, I don't think I actually watched it until I was in the later years of high school uh, for the 40th anniversary DVD. Oh, okay. So I, mm. well, excuse me, uh, VHS in yeah. this case. Um, yeah, because I, I don't think I caught it on television or anything. I think the old VH box was kind of boring. And then when I knew I wanted to watch it, I didn't want, want to watch it in Pan and Scan. So. I may have literally watched this before you then. Because <laughs> um, my dad had a videotape, uh -huh. and I watched it as a kid. In Pan and Scan? I don't recall okay. in as much detail, right, because I watched it as a child. But yeah, this yeah, is I, watched, I watched it pretty young, and it's only... Ten years between us, so yeah. it's possible. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but uh, this was one of my high school things. I, I do, I did have a Forbidden Planet poster on my wall in uh, university. Well, in the UK, the like chain of comic book shops is called Forbidden Planet. So when you hear the name, you think of that before the the film nowadays. Ah, okay. I say comic book shop; it's just a fucking Funko Pop Emporium these days. But <laughs> <laughs> and it's overpriced. You never buy any comics there. I haven't been in a comic book shop for a while. I uh, went to one over New Year. I went to one in Tokyo. Oh, okay. To track down the issue of Transformers oh, I'm missing. That, yes. um, this was, I guess, the first sort of tentpole sci-fi. Yeah. No, it's, it, this one broke ground in like a lot of ways. I thought, well, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I uh, read, it was... It was talking about how much Robbie the Robot cost to produce, which was quite a bit. Yeah, it was like 10% of the whole budget or something. Right. So I, I, the translated budget was that Robbie would have cost about just under a million bucks in today's money, meaning in today's money this movie only cost 7 to $10 million. Well, yeah. <laughs> which, when you think about it, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But just, you know, the money you'd throw at a sci-fi now. Mm -hmm. What if they threw that much money at a sci-fi in the mid-50s? What would that have turned into? You'd um, you'd be able to make the see it on the edge of tomorrow that had originally been written. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've read that comic book about a month ago. Are you, are you? It was on the Kindle Unlimited. Did that exist? I didn't know you'd read it. Oh, cool. No, no, when we talked about a while back, I had not read it, but mm. I just read it like a month ago. It was fine. But actually, you know what? It wasn't that different from the TV se- uh, episode. Uh, McCoy's okay. not in it at all. Huh. Uh, it's a drug dealing um, lieutenant on the Enterprise oh. that, I guess, uh, overdoses and goes nuts. And, huh. and of course, the the planet with the guardian is like way more elaborate, with like you know, lost city, sit, uh, the city on the edge of forever, and like right. these crystal guardians, and instead of just that arch. But uh, but that episode oh, see, of Star Trek. In my in my understanding, the city on the edge of forever is New York. Well, that's why I assumed. Mm. Uh, but that had originally actually been a city. When you look at the comic version based on the teleplay, it seems that that there it was supposed to be a space city. Um, the space city here has fallen into ruin. It's all underground and forbidden planet. Yeah. Not even an arch to talk to us. <laughs> but, yeah, budget-wise, it's like, like for the mid-50s, of course, this movie's pretty hip. But, yeah, it's not, it's pretty much in the range of a 60s Star Trek episode, more or less. With a little more bling. Yeah, I guess it's hard to figure out how that stuff works. Yeah, this, they definitely did more in this than an episode of Star Trek could do. Mm. Right. Um, so, the... The star here at the time, I guess Anne Francis, as the only woman in the film. Yep, one other is mentioned. <laughs> well, they mentioned, they don't yeah. show her. So as the, as the woman, Anne Francis is the woman. Um, the marquee, other marquee star here is uh, Water Pigeon. I was going to say the other marquee star here is Robbie. Oh, that was a marquee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think they actually put him on the marquee, didn't they? Yeah, it was him holding her in a scene which doesn't happen in the film. But Water Pigeon was the other, um, I guess, main actor. Right, so he's basically this film's equivalent of Maximilian in Black Hole in a few years' time. Exactly. Although Water Pigeon definitely is more relatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't come across as a mad scientist. Yeah, and most of um, his rage here is justifiably by the fact the entire crew is chasing his daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Woof! <laughs> <laughs> but the real star of this was not quite a star at the time, and I think that's who we're talking like you didn't remember he's in here. Yeah, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> but, like, it comes across, if 20, 30 years later, in one of the airplanes on eight guns, they'd done a spoof sci-fi film, it would just be this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, jumping too far ahead, talking about the movie too soon, the last scene where, like, the planet's literally exploding, is like, that's it, everything you've ever known is falling apart and burning. I don't know exactly what his words are. What are you doing, man? <laughs> he definitely should not be a grief counselor. Uh, actually, um, here's my take. I wrote this, uh, I haven't handed you my notes quite yet, but um, I got the impression that this entire ship is, like, a penal colony of sex offenders. <laughs> no, it's just dudes who've been locked up in a tube for a year. <laughs> and men are awful. And at the beginning, <laughs> they go into the tubes. It's, it's, are they supposed to be in those weird tube things for a year? Or is that just like a D... Um... I, I, I read it as like that's them coming out of hyperspace or something. Okay, so they're Or not... is it like the first little shot, they're just leaving, then they go in the tubes for a year and then they're arriving? Because like in the tubes, you don't dream. It's because you're listening to those horrible noises the whole time. <laughs> Oh, maybe I didn't read it as that, but maybe it was meant to be. They were, like, in stasis for most of that trip. I, 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 Which then means their behavior is even more an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, I wasn't quite sure what was supposed to be happening with the tubes. I just had the thought, what if they were not dreaming because they were listening to all this horrible stuff for, like, a year straight? <laughs> but, yeah, Leslie Nielsen, uh, he was a dramatic actor up until Airplane. Oh, yeah, because, like, 
That's kind of in airplane. He just delivers everything so straight. That was the whole joke. Here's this dramatic actor, you know, just saying the dumbest thing possible. Right. And he rolled with that for the rest of his career, and that is now what he's known for. Yeah. But this too, I think people still remember Forbidden Planet, but they forgot. I remember Forbidden Planet existing and being a good. I just forgot he was in it. Yeah. And yeah, to me, he's always been like Frank Drebin or whatever. No, I certainly remembered he's in this, and this is the only dramatic role that I can remember he was in. Right. (laughs) Because he did a lot of them. I think he was actually in Airport like the actual airplane disaster movie before being an airplane. But uh, I don't remember. I'm not sure. I'm sure he's in here. I just watched it, but I knew that anyway. So, mm. uh, Anyway, uh, I guess I'll go into the plot then because we're already talking about the movie anyway. Yeah, engage. The starship C-57D is on an interstellar flight to the colony of Altair IV, sporting the whitest crew to check the progress of the colony there. Upon reaching the planet, they receive a communique from Dr. Edward Morbius, begging them not to land on the planet. But this wouldn't be much of a movie if they didn't do just that. The senior staff of the crew is greeted by the amazing creation Robbie the Robot, who then leads them to Dr. Morbius. Morbius explains that all of the colonists have died of some planetary force, save for his wife, who later died of natural causes, and his daughter, which the entire crew of the C-57D then tries to seduce, excepting the cook who only wants what turns out to be synthetic bourbon from Robbie the Robot. Overnight, Something enters the spacecraft and destroys essential equipment. The commander goes looking for Morbius the next day and learns that the planet was once ruled by an advanced species known as the Krell. They created giant underground power resources that Morbius is more than happy to show them. See, the Krell brain booster has worked out well for Morbius. He has even managed to create Robbie the robot through its knowledge. The crew of the C-57D is less amused after a second attack from an unknown energy monster leaves a few crew members dead. Morbius swears nothing is amiss, even as his daughter decides to run off with the crew to Earth. With all the power of the Krell, the power of the Id, Morbius's out-of-control intentions try to pry his daughter from the charm of the crew with his out-of-control mental monsters fueled by the Krell technology. Morbius does not survive the experience, but Altera does and gets a truly depressing speech about the fate of her planet from the C-57D's commander. You said just now this is like the proto Star Trek. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Like they got the command structure. The ship is small, way smaller than the Enterprise, but 
seems to have that sort of mission uh, without the diverse crew. That's where I guess Star yes. Trek had quite a bit of forward thinking by putting many, you know, people of many different persuasions on the crew. Where this is all honkies. This is a very um, te- technology-wise. This is a film which was really forward thinking, but society-wise, it really wasn't. Yeah, this is the first film, I believe, that has a man, uh, you know, human-made ship going on an interstellar journey. According to Wikipedia, yeah, it's the first film where humans do interstellar travel. We had, like, a destination moon before this, but that's just to the moon, right? I mean, And we we had flying saucers come to us. Yeah. But, yeah, this is the first time. Interesting that uh, when this film was made, just the image of a ship that travels to other stars just was a flying saucer. Yeah, that's what they're in. I mean... A flying saucer makes sense. Least resistance, right? Yeah. I mean, if you have anti-grav technology, that shape would make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to use rocket propulsion, it's a terrible idea, but clearly they're not using rocket propulsion. Not at this point, right. I guess it's the first time anything had, like, something like warp speed or light speed. On the film, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure in books. Some books did. Um... But I think, I, th- I feel like some of the books I read that predated this had more like jumps, like Battlestar Galactica, mm. which honestly probably makes more sense anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you fold space, you jump sense, through. Right? Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, this had like your proto hyperdrive or your, what, do you remember what they call it? Did they call it they hyperdrive? They say we went to light speed and then faster. I don't know if they give it like a, a name like that. Okay. That's neither here nor there. Um, does their organization get a name? Is this a, like an American ship? Uh, no, I think they said it's the United Planets. Yeah, okay, it's Black Hole where they had the, where they had the American ship for some reason. But yeah, United Planets. Hell, that's that's United Planets with a one with a S. I think so. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty Federation forward looking. But then they also, um, they have money. Yeah. <laughs> so this is very much not Gene Roddenberry's socialist future. Right. Right. Because uh, these guys got docked pay when they didn't do good guard duty. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you can't forward think in every way that's, when you're But making... that's what I mean. It was, in terms of the tech, very much so. Yeah. But in terms of literally everything else, well, this okay. is so 1956. Mm. There's one more piece where this does fit very nicely with later Trek is the uh, morality morality play aspect of the story. Oh, definitely, yeah. It, we're definitely, uh, definitely. We're basically um, just using the template of the Tempest here. Yeah, to the point that they, like, name-check characters and stuff. Yeah, Proteus Morbius? Is Proteus... What is in the bo- in the play? Excuse me. Proteus, I think? Yeah, okay. But, like, um... Morbius... Altair, I think. Yeah. Altair, it's all from the book. Right. Um, we actually did that one in high school, but I don't remember it very well. I don't... But I remember at the time we did it at school, I was, I was like trying to weasel into us getting to watch Forbidden Planet because I knew that it was inspired by... <laughs> I don't remember if I succeeded or not. I... I, I, I'm not trying to brag that I've read a few Shakespeare plays, but I don't think I've read The Tempest. Oh, I just got to throw a shout-out. I hope it's still there. Atlanta has the uh, Shakespeare Tavern. Where okay. you can go, and they have the old school, like, they never change the set. It's all costumes, like the nice. Globe, right? Yeah, yeah, And then, you know, you can buy some tourist turkey legs and chug down on beer that costs a little too much and watch the play. I mean, I come from the UK, so we have a lot of Shakespeare shit. I know, so. but you just don't get many chances. Like, in the States, it's always classy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or here, it's not very... Like, it's done well, but it's not classy. Mm. I think the way I see, see Shakespeare, you know, like like he was a Michael Bay of his time, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, he was... Well, I think, um, should throw back to last week's episode in The Fast and Furious, I noticed in your notes, you said, 500 years' time, is this going to be the equivalent of Shakespeare dialogue? <laughs> really? Just chucking them insults at each other. Because yeah. it's pop stuff. It was for the yeah. plebes. It was for the masses. Yeah. <laughs> But, so, I mean, uh, 
anyone who tries to write this is high art, this is it's just a pretentious asshole, right? <laughs> so I don't think anything which we now think of as the classics was written that way. No, I mean, Shakespeare has plenty of insults that now sound classy, you know? Yeah. By the time, it was... It was His bawdy humor, yeah. Tales of ribaldry! <laughs> Have you ever heard tales of ribaldry? Well, just as a phrase? It, it was, um... Uh, this is a Saturday Night Live sketch from many years ago. It had okay. John Lovitz as a, ooh, too excited guy telling you tales of ribaldry. And just started to tell this really obvious story of a still young Mel Gibson as the woodcutter coming over to the young maiden's house. And it was just a ridiculous sketch and, okay. and fun. And yeah, kind of like the romance level of this movie. Very little SNL made it to the UK. Okay. But, uh, but the quality of, of the tale of ribaldry uh, romance is about on the level of here. Even, yeah, even if we're getting to the commander. It's like... I don't want to harp on it too much because it's like a 64-year-old film. But all of that shit was really uncomfortable. But it's like just 10 years later, Star Trek, taking a lot of this, was able to tweak that so well. I mean, yeah. even from the cage, number one's a woman, right? Yep. So they, but yeah, they, the only woman in this is just like this young, naive, has never met anyone but her own father. And they're all immediately telling lies to try and get in her pants. <laughs> <laughs> And including like, the commander. <laughs> and it's not even like... They don't even get in trouble for that. <laughs> it's like he finds other excuses to tell them off because he wants to bang her. But, like, <laughs> it's at no point is it wrong that they were trying to... <laughs> and what, when he's talking to his ex, he's like, well, yep, I know you're the man for her. He's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Why is that even... A, let's put down now. Let's say there's a... a, a, a a, I don't know, a, um, a destroyer sounds so... Cruiser, there we go. It's a yeah. cruiser. It pulls into a foreign harbor. If the XO and the captain are like, she's a woman for you, that's like a scandal in the making. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly what does happen, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Like, pretty regularly. I know. I'm just saying when, it, when people notice it's a scandal. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why American troops are not tried under Japanese law, Matt. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might finally now actually be. Oh, Okinawa's a mess, man. Yeah. The Okinawans want them out. Tokyo wants America to stay, and the Americans... Yeah, because then they don't have to spend any money on their own military. <laughs> yeah, really. But <laughs> Okinawa itself is like, please leave. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they create, commit huge human rights violations on the reg and then just get Cra quietly shuffled somewhere else. Crash helicopters into university campuses. Yep. <laughs> so um, we're kind of crashing into the Krell technology here, just to give her to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the tech... Um, well, let's talk about the first most obvious. We've already talked about the spaceship. I think we guess we're done with that. Yeah, it's it's there. It's a flying saucer. It's kind of cool. It has that weird phasing we're not sure about. Moving on. Yeah, proto enterprise. Um, probably the robot. Yeah, this is the standout piece of tech for most of this film. Yes, he. It's a very iconic design. It is kind of shit though. Yeah. Here's the, <laughs> I, 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 you said you read the recap. I'm sure you read this, but and I knew this anyway because I had the DVD with the extra movie on it, but. Robbie costs so much, as you said, 10% of the budget, uh, which wasn't surprisingly big even by today's standards. But, uh, you know, they reused him. They tweak him a little bit. Um, he was in another movie next year. They'd use him in, like, TV episodes. Just try and change him a little bit when he showed up. Yep. Which makes sense. I understand that. Yeah, he shows up in uh, Looney Tunes back in action. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. Um, it's better than Space Jam. Oh, I almost conflated the two in my mind. Oops. Yeah, Space Jam's <laughs> the one with Michael Jordan. They play basketball. Looney Tunes Back in Action is with Brendan Fraser, 
and it's, it feels way more Looney Tunes. Yeah, like yeah. They're fighting the Acme Corporation and stuff. No, I remember that actually got like good reviews and stuff when it yeah, came it just, out. Yeah, it didn't, didn't seem to catch on. But when you mentioned it to me a while ago, I just instantly went for Space Jam. Right. right. No, no, and this one is different, but there's a bit where they go to Area 52 hmm. and um, Marvin the Martian releases all the aliens and it's like Robbie the Robot, there's a Dalek, I think there's one from like um, They Live, just... <laughs> All these old school monsters they just happen to have on set. Okay, that's cool. It's a really fun scene, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know Warner distributes this now. I don't, I don't think it was Warner. It's M- MGM? I believe it was MGM, yeah. Yeah, MGM went through some rough times and lost half their film, so I guess right. that's how that happened. But, uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, Robbie, he's, well, Wikipedia says he's the first, like, thinking, has a personality robot on screen. Yeah. Apart from the, uh, Machine and Smash. Oh, yes, yes. Right. <laughs> Which we've already covered. We've covered that. Um, um, I'm definitely less attracted to Robbie than I have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked, uh, I know we, we spoke about Hal being the first, like, straight-up AI. Mm. Um, and we mentioned Robbie as, is, is he one. Having watched the movie, and no, he's not. No, no, he's following programming the yeah. whole time. Yeah. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't really have any emotion to speak of. He's he just, does make some gags. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a bit He of makes like some gags, but if he, has, sarcastic if he has any conflict, he starts uh, short-circuiting himself yeah, yeah, yeah. using the magic of uh, Disney animation. Which is more um, proto-Star Trek, because Kirk loves doing that to robots. <laughs> well, wa- water pitching, excuse me, Dr. Morbius or whatever, seems to do it for fun in here. Yeah, true. <laughs> hey, look at this. <laughs> I'm blowing up my own robot. Oh, let's stop that. Okay. <laughs> And then, he is a very funky design. I mean, he knew that was going to happen at the end of movies when he's trying to keep them out of the Crow Lab. And he's like, mm. you know, has Roby, de- Ro- Roby, Robbie defended. I mean, he, he must have known you know, that he was going to short circuit Robbie and just stall for like 20 seconds time, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, it's something, right? But I guess it didn't fry him too hard because he's flying the ship in the end. So I didn't spot that. Because they had they cannibalized the ship, right? Right. To communicate with Earth. One, how practical is that? You have to cannibalize your ship to make contact with oh, it was home? because the monster destroyed bits. Uh, yeah, but weren't they doing it for... Anyway, anyway uh, <laughs> they have to leave quickly because um, Dr. Morbius sets the self-destruct without consulting anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it has... The, Robbie, you know, Robbie is their fix. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fine. It, it leaves out a plot hole. Yay. <laughs> Uh, this movie doesn't really have plot holes. Does it have like um, sexism? Sure. Does it have plot holes? I think it just no, holds up pretty, pretty well. well. Yeah. I guess we have got the spaceship. We have got Robbie, and then you're into the weird Krell stuff. Okay. Which, when I went back to watch this film, I'd forgotten any of that was in there. That is one of my first thoughts here. So, I, th- I think I think that comes with our metaphysical and psych psychological, uh, philosophical uh, implications. So, shall we take a real deep dive into the Krell? Let's do it. Before I hit record, you're like, wow, we didn't really talk about the characters much. But <laughs> the characters are man, woman, mad scientist. And that's pretty much it. Robot. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, robot. But he's, monster. Is this a monster movie? Well, if, uh, Dr. Morbius is the monster in the end, but he's, he's a um, monster you can identify with. Because it's his out of control. Hmm? Okay, it's a bit of an Incredible Hulk, Jekyll and Hyde kind of Exactly. Monster, he, yeah. he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't actually wish harm on anyone, but his, you know, subconscious has gone completely nuts. Yeah, which makes him a much more relatable villain than, like, like you said earlier, um, no, Maximilian's the actor. <laughs> him from Black Hole. The robot? No. The actor. The actor. Who is Reinhardt. Reinhardt. Reinhardt, there we go. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's say Reinhardt to keep things... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah but I was at first comparing him to Reinhardt, but he is more relatable. I would... De- well, I was about to say I'd definitely rather spend a day with Dr. Morbius than Reinhardt. Well, okay. I, okay. Reinhardt would be entertaining. <laughs> you know, Morbius, just, just be careful if you're, you know, spending the night, I guess. Yeah. Reinhardt will turn you into a zombie <laughs> right. humanoid real quick. You did see a bit, a bit of the old, uh, there's no plot holes. He could have explained more when he was telling them not to land. Yeah. He just said, don't land. Well, I wash my hands a bit. She's like, don't land. There is an invisible creature which will attack you. <laughs> he hasn't been talking to many people recently. True. Just true. his daughter, who, I mean, he's basically her Brainwashed controller. Brainwashed her into hating yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So... He might not, he's just, stay away, stay away. I mean, because he, it, it's not, I mean, he has to be brought around to the, you know, the fact that it is his subconscious that's causing all this trouble. Mm. He doesn't really get it. Okay. Well, yeah, so. He should get it, but he doesn't. That what we're meant to be talking about, the Krell stuff. Well, yeah, this Krell technology that enables his subconscious to. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's what we were originally going to talk about, remember? Right, the story <laughs> everyone. So, Krell technology, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Yeah, that's, uh, see, because. I think of that as a fairly modern sci-fi trope doing a lot of ancient alien stuff. But it's here, it's in 2001. Yeah. I guess it's been around as long as sci-fi films. Well, and this, to me, ancient aliens is like when you try to explain, like, Egypt. But he does say they visited Earth. Does he? Because that's why they've got tigers and deer. Oh! He mm. says before humans even walked on Earth, they came and... Okay, because I found a note, a note on the, um, somewhere, uh, that... I think it was from the novelization. Okay. That the tigers and all those animals were not real tigers and things. They're those created were created by her subconscious. Yeah. So if you were to actually like you know look into them, not that you'd want to do that, especially with a tiger, you'd find that they were not animals. They were energy constructs. Uh, okay. So I mean, why uh, would so, there yeah. be tigers there? He's just theorizing that they visited Earth. No, I wrote. I wrote in my notes, which we can't see because it's too dark. I was like, do they bring a tiger on the spaceship with them? Because that seems like <laughs> a stupid idea. <laughs> But it's not a tiger. It's it's a con- energy manifestation okay, construct of a, a tiger, as the monster is an energy construct manifestation. But the yeah. tiger can kill you if it gets in the mood, and so can the energy monster. Yep. But the tiger can be killed with a sidearm, and the energy monster cannot. Yeah. But yeah, this is an incredible hawk thing. Uh, the comic would have been five years after this. Is oh, it, yeah. Is that a real connection? I know. I feel like it's much more just straight up Jacqueline Hyde for the Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Hulk is separate from Banner. Yeah. Whereas this thing is. Because this is this is a, this is the Tempest strain. So. I feel like there have been other monsters who are more like this, but I can't now think of them. Yeah. Where it's like a. Because Morbius isn't connection. really a villain at all. I mean, even less than Reinhardt from the Black Hole. He's not a villain. Well, no. He even he does in the end sacrifice himself. Yeah, yeah, once he realizes what's happening and that it, he is responsible for it, you know. He accepts that responsibility, he's not. Yeah. 
But uh, and, and the, the the power levels are pretty intense. I like that where they show you all the ga- the gauges. Yeah. <laughs> so that really does at the end of the movie. Whoa! When they're all just like flying. Um, this with the Krell, the innards of the Krell. One, I, I thought that would be a good place to toss the emperor. <laughs> yeah, of, I guess. Lots of shafts to toss your emperor down. Is that how we got Ray? Someone tossed the emperor. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the scale of it's cool. The matte paintings in this. Oh my God, they're so cool. They're really good. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Um, from what I understand, they built a three fourths of the spaceship on a soundstage, and then built an alien panorama, which looks fine. It looks like a set, but it looks like a real, real cool set. <laughs> yeah, it, this all looks really good. The Krell, I think they're using the same technology as Metropolis to have them walking through those. Oh uh, uh, yeah, there were a couple shots where they were walking on it, which looked amazing. And there's like an elevator moving as well. Yeah, and it's like I think it's the same tech they're using. And like they even do like a like they start at a weird angle and like tilt into it. Mm. Yeah, 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 that was very modern sci-fi stuff. Yeah, it's a well-shot movie. I mean, it looks good. Uh, cheesy. Uh, che- I don't know. Is it is it cheesy? I don't think it was cheesy when it came out. It wasn't when it came it's out. It's cheesy in the fact that it's a 60-year-old film, right? There's gonna be an element of cheese. But Metropolis wasn't cheesy at all. But it didn't have dialogue. Yeah. And it was cheesy. There's a lot of boob grabbing and ridiculous facial expressions. Oh, okay, the, and... the acting style, but I'm talking the design. Nothing's, I mean, as far as like the design of Metropolis, nothing really stands as cheesy now. Because I guess because Art Deco is currently popular. Yeah. Or a sort of 50s. So when we get pop, back into sci fi cocktails, then this will look pretty hip. Again. Yeah, yeah, this just isn't. It's, just, it's isn't not currently in the trend, It's not right? quite the time for Forbidden Planet at the moment. Well, I guess. The only parts of the design that are cheesy are Robbie and the strat they have in a flying saucer. The, the buildings s- and sets look good. Yeah, the flying saucer, yeah, I get that. Robbie is so iconic now because of this movie, but uh, right. <laughs> it's like he gets a pass. Yeah. Because you're like, that's Robbie, yeah, okay. But otherwise, like the costu- the uniforms are pretty cool. Yeah. They're a bit gray and... I was say they were a little bland, but... Which doesn't help with the fact that you already can't tell all these 30 white <laughs> men apart. <laughs> but and I think I said 24, but... <laughs> But uh, considering that there are no precedents really for your sci-fi, you know, spaceship crew, I guess it's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty decent one. Yeah. What else would you put them in in 1955? Uh, well, just like a very like anything before this, they would have just been wearing a normal uniform, right? Like they just look like modern. <laughs> yeah, they just look like modern soldiers. Right. Um, I do. There's a. I don't know if you know of this. It's a. It's a really stupid spoof movie, uh, which I greatly enjoy. It's a trial called Amazon Women on the Moon. No. Okay. They, they take a little bit of Destination Moon. That's mm-hmm. like kind of their main thing. It's. It's pretty funny. It's interspersed. It's a sketch comedy thing. But uh, yeah, they basically reuse the costumes from this movie for that. Oh, okay. So it's kind of fun. Huh. Yeah, I don't even know if I should recommend you watch that or not. That goes for Luke, and that goes for anyone listening. Yeah, that sounds. <laughs> That sounds like maybe a miss. Or, you know, I watched the trailer on YouTube. <laughs> it, it's like I don't know how much is uh, nostalgia. It does have a lot of notable actors in it. Uh, a lot oh, of some, Especially for the late 80s, there's a lot of big names in it for some reason. Huh. But that's, that's like Ed Bagley Jr. and Steve Gutenberg. Okay. The, you know, in the late 80s, that's notable. Yeah. <clears throat> but in the mid-50s, we have Anne Francis in Water Pigeon. Not Leslie Nielsen again. It's kind of weird because he's the one we know now. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, in the film, he was he was fairly high billing, but not top. But I feel like, if you look at it, the Wikipedia page, he was, like, top billing. Who was? 
Leslie Nielsen. Oh, right, okay. Because okay. he's now the Yeah, Phoenix now he is, okay. Water pigeons' voices. Whoa, that's, uh, that's some smooth cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a good voice for this he, stuff. Yeah, you can listen to that guy all day. I guess you can listen to Leslie Nielsen, too, but you think he's going to say something stupid. Yeah, it... it there is a part of you that just is always waiting for the gag in this film. That's why it works so cut. well, though, because he acts exactly the same here as he does in yep. his later comedy films. Yeah, it's just that that, That's why it was so genius to have him do that later. Right. <laughs> I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> I think by the time we do get to Naked Gun, he is doing a bit more of a bit, right? But an airplane is just that he's delivering with a very straight face. Well, even there, it's a bit. I mean, he knew it was a comedy. It's not like Slim yeah, Pickens yeah, yeah. and but Dr. Strange. His, his whole um, character in Airplane is that he is a serious person. Right. Because I think by the naked gun, he does some more wacky stuff. Yeah. So, if you know, if, you, if you've had a few drinks, I guess Forbidden Planet can play as a comedy if you want it to. Yep. <laughs> but if you haven't, it, it actually works very well as a legitimate sci-fi, which is why we're talking about it 60 years later. Yeah, I mean, I keep saying this when we watch these old films. I sat through it and I enjoyed it. Like films, you can still watch old films, they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and this one even has some nice Technicolors. Cinemascope, Technicolor, all that. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, 56, it's very colorful. Yeah, it bleeds right into your eyeballs. It's great. So we were talking a little bit about the design holding up but, um, and the cinematography, but the effects as well do look pretty good in this film. Yeah, they, we talked about them reusing the metrop- sort of Metropolis uh, mirroring stuff. That's cool. Um, back to that Disney connection, it has a lot, uh, a lot of the, the bling bling is an, a Disney animation or, or from an animator they had hired from Disney in this case. Yeah, so like your laser beams and your electricity and stuff. The laser beams move like disturbingly slow though. Yeah, but... I guess we're just know. so used to, you know, Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> you know, moves like a laser blast. Even if you watch older Star Treks, I think they're pretty slow beams there. Yeah. Even through, like, the 90s, I think, with Star Trek, they were like, oh, don't have them shoot the phaser too much because it was just, like, real expensive to do that effect every time <laughs> they shot. Yeah. Um, here, I... Again, they, they... Like, you can dodge these lasers <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah. Um... From what I understand, I mean, it, it shoots that tiger out the sky. Oh, that was cool, yeah. That was very cool because it like there's like a cloud where it like disintegrates and stuff. Yeah, apparently the way they did it was um, he animated in like transparent, like vellum or something, and they put just, it over actual yeah, frames. yeah, and it works nice. well. It definitely looks animated, but in '55 or '56, that's perfectly fine. Cause, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Would it? Should they have done in black and white? I mean, the answer is no, but I'm just wondering. Would the, I think those effects would have looked crazy good in black and white? Yeah, in color they're fine, and and we get the rest of the movie, which I do want in color. Yeah, 
But uh, I am sitting here wondering, I wonder if that animation would actually look better in black and white. Which probably. Probably. How about the monster? I really like how they did that. I mean, you He's see invisible, less... and then you see him when he gets hit with beams. Yeah, you see him less than Jaws, really, but... Well, you, you, you just don't see him, right? Yeah. You just see the lasers hitting him, but it, it's a really cool effect. Did you catch a goatee? I caught, like, kind of a face, yeah. He's got a little bit of a goatee? And uh, the only character in the movie that has any facial hair is Dr. Morbius. Dr. Yeah, so <laughs> it's sort of nice like touch. a little, you know, like a, not spoiler, but a East, not an East, a hint. A hint. Yeah, uh, no one uses the there's word a word, but I can't remember it. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, yeah. Yeah. Five o'clock foreshadow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that looks good. Uh, man, I guess there aren't actually that many effects here. They yeah, built I mean, that car, that was the spa- Well, we have shots of the spaceship flying, which look good. Yeah, they look good enough I didn't anything to talk about them, did I? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, but for 56, those are good spaceship scenes. Yeah, the planet goes... Do we see the planet disintegrate? We see it, yeah, we see... Um, or they just talk about it. But like, when they first arrive, we see it, like, in eclipse. Then we see it from, like, with different lighting. Oh, that was cool, it. yeah. Yeah, they, that stuff's all cool. Yeah, that, those are some nice space shots. Yeah. Okay. And, and again, the fact that I, like, oh, I didn't really notice them until just now. I was like, yeah, they were nice space shots. Uh, they have a full-on landing sequence that's nice yeah um well the uh star trek didn't have star trek invented the transporters because that was so expensive they didn't want to do that every week yeah and honestly that would have gotten real old anyway so yeah uh, well they would it would have ended up being like a like a japanese like power rangers thing where they just reused the footage every week yeah well they did that (laughs) anyway but (laughs) the um the weird stasis tubes are quite transporter-looking. Yeah, but I'm still not quite sure what they were. <laughs> no, but I, uh, I... Yeah, yeah, they did look a lot like the transporters. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like they took them. Because uh, a lot of the elements from this... Uh, now I'm getting back to the design, I guess. But a lot of the props from this movie, like Robbie, did end up showing up in other places. Because mm. now this movie didn't cost much, even by today's standards. But at the time, that was a hell of a lot of money to throw at sci-fi. Yeah. Well, considering there hadn't really been sci-fi, not like this. No, no, not at all. Um, it's a pretty bold move, I guess. Yeah. At some point, this turned into almost a kid's movie. Really? When it came out, it was, it was basic... Oh, I've read the reason why. Okay. When this came out, it actually was supposed to be like a legitimate, like, you know, adult to want to watch this film sort of thing. Right. In, in the way that a modern, you know, sci-fi blockbuster would be. In the early 70s, it was used, uh, edited for a few minutes of the, the more hardcore stuff. N- not that way. But, uh, you know, like more violent scenes. Or, okay. Or, I guess. And See, because that's Francis not the stuff I would around. edit for kids. <laughs> and Francis. Yeah. yeah the, I don't know what they edited because I haven't seen this version. Right. Um, they showed it. It was like made to go on like Saturday matinee road shows. Huh. And at that point was rated. When it came out, there was no rating system. The rating system was a little later. Oh, in the early 70s, it was given a G rating because right. it was this like slightly less racy version of the film. Huh. After that, the film started getting screened again with the, the full thing, but it kept its G rating. So uh-huh. it actually has a G rating now, but probably shouldn't. I mean, by today's standards. By today's standards, it can have it. It's fine. It could but, be freaking you. <laughs> yeah, even by yeah. 70s, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's, got, a li- it's got enough... To, it has enough adult themes to, you know, make it a PG, I think. Okay, I don't know American ratings. G so is, G is the equivalent of our U? I guess. That means bring your two-year-old and leave him there and don't care. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have U, which is universal. PG, parental guidance. 
Because I was talking, 15, 18. Yeah, 2001, I, I mentioned, also got the G rating somehow. That one definitely doesn't deserve a G rating. <laughs> That's pretty freaking scary. Yeah, people places. get murdered, you know? Oh, people get murdered in this movie, too. Plus, I think if someone's murdered in your movie, that means it's not G anymore. And uh, the monster does murder a few crew members, so. Oh, no, Bambi's mother gets murdered. It's off screen. That's true. Yeah, it There's is definitely deaths to Disney. Is what I'm getting at. Well, they didn't rate movies in the 40s anyway. It later got a G because they were like, "Oh, it's Bambi. It has to get a G." <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what they rate if they had a system at the time. It's been a while since we did our like musical interlude. You want to do one? Uh, we can try. <laughs> this film has no score, which is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is the. Uh, in fact, it's not even listed as music. It's uh, called electronic tonalities. Ooh, that's do you know cool. Why, do you know why? So they didn't have to pay for it properly. Oh, they, they paid. <laughs> it was a. It was a beatnik. Well, they, they found a couple playing in a beatnik club. Nice. That's kind of cool. Uh, Louis and Bebe Baron, I think, is the name. Um, anyway, they, they hired them. They were like, that's cool. They hired them to do the, the sound, the music. They called the music at the time. Uh, so they did it. And it turned out they were not part of any, like, union. Mm. So they couldn't call it, like, a soundtrack or a score. Oh. That's why it's electronic I knew it would be a union thing. It but. kept them from being um, nominated for any thing right uh they didn't put out the soundtrack until like the 70s and i think the musicians themselves put it out at first <laughs> um it is cool here's the thing that um in the 90s i thought it was cool i actually bought the cd which you can't just listen to by the way yeah no it, it doesn't seem the sort <laughs> this time around maybe it's because i've learned enough about how to use synthesizers and, and i'm i'm really not trying to rag on the, the electronic tonalities of the film at all but yeah, this time around it, it was kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> there were scenes, walk, 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 walk. Was, uh, there were scenes where it, it was nothing scary or tense was happening, and it was still doing it like. Bum, 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 bum. I was like, why? <laughs> but like, it in terms of like pioneering, oh, it's, it's fucking incredible. No, right? definitely, definitely. Um, this is before a computer sang a bicycle built for two. So what they're doing is actually pretty wild. Yeah. And it is cool for the most part. But yeah, watching it this time, I was kind of like, eh, a little bit of music going for noise. <laughs> but then we get to the 70s and like electronic music is just what you do for sci-fis, right? Yeah, yeah. It maybe wouldn't have happened without this. No. Yeah, because once we get to Clockwork Orange, which I believe you said you haven't seen, it's, it's all like uh, Beethoven on a Moog. That's awesome. <laughs> So, this isn't Beethoven on a Moog. This is just screeching no, is noise, just sound, <laughs> screeching ring modulators in your ear, which is still <laughs> cool. But yeah, as now that I'm a little older and I don't want to hear that damn noise, it, it I guess it grated on me a little more. It is some damn noise, to be fair. It is damn noise. I like you, there's there's not like a bit you couldn't remember or hum or anything. I just did. <laughs> yeah. 
That's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, man. A little more harshness, though. You weren't harsh enough. <laughs> yeah, the house around us are happy now. Because <laughs> we're recording this at the dark in a temple with houses around us. Yeah, it's not actually as late as it looks. Yeah, it's only like 6.30. Oh, well. We're just old. It feels late. <laughs> <laughs> it got dark quick, as you said. Yep, that's Dead Mountains for you. Right. I, it's a very iconic film. It, it's very watchable now, but I guess there's not that much meat to the bones here. We've gotten through most of it, I think. Do we miss anything, like, super important? Well, I mean, like you say, there's not really characters to talk about. The plot is fairly bare bones. It's a pretty Jungian primal story. Yeah. I mean, the story holds lots of weight. Again, they're, Again, you know... because of Shakespeare. Yeah, they're riffing so. Shakespeare a bit. And then, you know, adding... They're adding design. They're adding these interesting effects. And they're not really adding any particular new wrinkles, except for, you know, a little bit of, like, technology. But Tempest does that fine. They just call it magic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to watch it now, it is kind of amazing to be, like... To see what it brought to the table. Like we say, it brought so much, which then Star Trek ran with. But in terms of on its own... It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, watching this is basically the equivalent of watching a pretty good TOS Star Trek episode. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it almost rolls that way. Yeah. Um, you have the... But it, as a TOS Star Trek episode, you would have more likable cast. You'd have a more likable cast. Oh, well, Leslie Nielsen's likable, except when he gets, you know, depresso ranting and horny, but... <laughs> 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 Otherwise, he, you know... I kind of like the chef guy who just wanted his bourbon. Right, he was he was the only one not chasing the ladies and gets sixty gallons of bourbon. That's amazing. <laughs> from, from Robbie, is Robbie the Spock here? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he's well, got no, data, you know. Doesn't really have motion or anything. Yeah, but um, no, it's, it's very watchful now. It definitely feels like something from the fifties, but the best of what you can watch in the fifties, which basically is what this is. Um, if you go for any other fifties sci-fi, you're going to get a lot of these tropes done like a lot less well. The fact that this one is still very watchable today without you giggling giggling at it too much. Uh, Ed, you're talking specifically about like space explorer sci-fi. There is some other stuff where they, things come to Earth, which is done well. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically getting on the you know, space voyage, you yeah. know, Destination Moon. Uh, and I've, I, it feels like I'm slamming that movie. That one's actually a lot of fun to watch, too. But uh, I guess it's just that having now had the space race, you can't watch a film where they go to another planet in a rocket. Yeah. Well, there's a, <laughs> it, just, it feels too ridiculous. It might be the same year. It might be a few years earlier. Uh, George Powell's When Worlds Collide. It's Earth that's going to crash yeah, into yeah, Nibiru. Yeah, I can't remember if that's before or after War of the Worlds. It's, a ra it's after War of the Worlds. Yeah, it probably would be I don't remember where it is. War of the Worlds is 53. Yeah, I don't remember quite where it is in relation to this, if it's a little before or after. But mm. yeah, they, they basically slide a rocket and shoot on into space at the, in that one to escape Earth. So, you know, the saucer probably works a little better here anyway. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, okay, we're going to go. It holds up. It, it, any messages it has were in the Tempest to begin with. Yep. Uh, except for the don't, don't. Be a hornball, I guess. <laughs> I don't think that was in the Tempest. <laughs> uh, yeah, Shakespeare had no problem with hornballs. <laughs> this doesn't have the "Don't be a hornball" message though, because they're hornballs anyway, and never really see much come up except from Daddy's id monster, which does, to fair say, murder a few of them. So not true, true. <laughs> but those might have not been the ones you know hitting on his daughter. So. <laughs> she, she she did tell Leslie Nelson that she'd kissed everyone. Oh, everyone. Okay, well, everyone's <laughs> guilty then. Really? All of them did that? I don't know. Oh, shit. 
<laughs> she'd, I think she'd only met a couple at this point. Oh, okay. I was about to say that. That made me. I, I wanted to double down on my. This ship is a penal colony of sex offenders. It should be by the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe when they get home, they. Maybe they shouldn't have escaped the planet. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but, yeah, this film is definitely an interesting curio, and you should watch it if you're a sci-fi fan. What's well, it's a little more in a curio. I well, yeah, curio is the wrong word. But yeah. I mean, what I mean is. It's, it, it's worth watching, but not necessarily in terms of it's going to be, like, the best film you've ever seen. No. You, but you have to watch it. Yeah. If you're into sci-fi. It, it, it lays the groundwork for some of the best things you've ever seen later on. Yeah. It's just It doesn't do a terrible job of that. No. Yeah. So, uh, winding down here today, I think. So, uh, you will find us. Oh, man, I, I still can't just spit out the letters where you find us. Go on, try. MLSFS. Pod. Yes. All right, I got it out. MLSFS Pod on Twitter. We're also on Facebook. Search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. And obviously we're on iTunes, YouTube. However you're currently listening to this. When I type out the YouTube, I really have to think about the letters. And then I have to think about which number the episode is. I think this one's 21. I think it's episode wow. 21. Wow. We've done that many. Yeah. Damn. Woo. Tang. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Loves Pokemon is also available if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, that's my other podcast if you want to check that out. And if you've liked the music you've heard in this episode, not the music coming from me and Matt's mouth, the actual music. Yeah, and, and, and not the one in Forbidden Planet, although it's, it works here. And I've, I've done noises like that before. <laughs> what I'm getting at is the music in this podcast is created by Matt, and you can find his music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. Okay, anyway, this has been Matt. This has been Luke. The time has come, the war was said, for you to get the fuck out of our sci-fi sanctuary.